0: So probably a number of you in this room know Joanna Macy and her teachings, her wonderful teachings about care for this earth and some years ago I had the great pleasure of spending some time with her and her husband, Fran um, at a conference with the Dalai Lama in India and then for some time afterwards and I particularly wanted to offer tonight's talk um, for them Fran died on Tuesday mm. and what's quite wonderful he was he was such a passionate man for um, working for change compassionate change in this world and he had watched the inauguration and he was mm. just so filled with joy and then he went and lay down and took a nap, and apparently had a heart attack. So one of those. I'm at my age. I'm beginning to say one of those, <laughs> where people leave all of a sudden. And um, he was probably pretty close to eighty. Um. And um, so this. I want to talk a little bit tonight about intention, and it seems fitting to offer it for him and for them because their lives have been so deeply guided by this great passion and this great intention of being of service to the world and to all beings hmm. maybe I don't need to say anything more that might be enough huh? <laughs> I could just stop here and we could all go home <laughs> go have dinner or whatever so about a year ago some of you may remember I've mentioned this before I had the occasion uh, while visiting on the big island to go to over to the Kona side of the island to visit a friend who has a place there and she said oh I have this thing I want to take you to see this special place and so we went down to the beach um, or to the coast it wasn't really a beach at sunset and she wanted to show me this particular tide pool and every night at sunset the sea turtles the honu come to that tide pool and they come six eight ten twelve fourteen of them one after another and they kind of swim in and they sort of arrange themselves around and sometimes they stack themselves up and they spend the night there. And they do this night after night. You can go down any night of the week. There seem to be a number of people who are down there watching. And my understanding is, everybody's understanding is, they come because it's a safe place and they don't need to worry about sharks and that kind of thing and they can rest for the night. And then when dawn comes, they go back out and forage around for the seaweed that they particularly like. And I was very touched to watch these great, great creatures, I mean really big creatures, come swimming in and to reflect that they do this again and again and again and that they know to do that. And I've often thought of it since then, because here we are, this bunch of sea turtles, <laughs> right? And it's, not, it's a little after sunset. Sometimes it's sunset when we're here, a little later in the year. But we come back again and again. And you know to come here. You know to come here to the Santa Cruz. You know to come to your cushion, wherever it is. You know to go to places like Spirit Rock and Land of Medicine Buddha and Vajrapani, wherever your place is that you like to go on retreat. And we do this. We come to wake up. We come to find some kind of deeper truth. Um, We come to be in community. And we come over and over and over again. When I first thought of this, I thought about my early retreat experience. And you know, it's kind of interesting because I don't know that my intention was so very clear about exactly why I was doing it. But what I did know was (laughs) that coming to practice seemed to help. And so, you know, I would sit a retreat or go to a sitting group or do this or that and then I'd sign up for another and then I'd sign up for another. And so, just like all of us, you know. And and certainly over time began to notice that although by no means have I come to a place where there's a complete eradication of suffering, um, I have, I think, seen as I think probably everybody in this room has seen, that there's at least less suffering and what my friend Sylvia Borstein calls the third and a half noble truth. You know, the third noble truth is you come, there is an ending of suffering. And the third and a half is, well, at least there's a little less. And so we know that. And, you know, we live, I mean, what we've been hearing, right? You just turn the radio on or the TV on or you listen to countless speeches or even in the midst of that wonderful day of celebration on Tuesday, we hear about how much suffering there is and how difficult it is, and how frightening it is. And, and even though at this very moment in time, I think there seems to be a little extra bit of hope floating around, there's also that underlying thing of, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? Will I, will we, will we here at the Santa Cruz be okay? You know, what, what will happen? And so what we know is it's really important to to find places of refuge, to find it in ourselves and to find it in our communities. And, And we know that we need to find these places in the midst of all of this chaos, and that is our culture, a culture which is filled with so much busyness and greed and coming and going all of the time. There's a Zen koan that talks about, in the koan, about the one who is not busy. And I've always been kind of taken with that. I was like, what? How can that? Is there such a being on the planet? You know, the one who is not busy. And um, I know some time ago someone said to me, "I'm not busy, and I intend to stay that way." And I was just shocked. That, that there there could be a person who wasn't busy and uh, intended to stay that way. And so we come here, partly, I think, sometimes, to kind of let go of that, to step out of that chaos, to step out of that busyness. And we come here um, mm-hmm. into what um, Angelus Arian describes as the sweet territory of silence, which is a phrase I really like. It's a little bit quieter here, and we sit down and you don't do anything for 45 minutes or an hour or a day or if you're at a retreat center even longer than that. And the instructions for practice bring us back over and again. Don't do anything. Just notice what's happening. Notice your breath. Notice your body. Notice the mind and the heart. And um, and so we as we come over and over again into the stillness, into this little tide pool, really, we begin to realize that there's some value to this, this place of uh, safety and quiet and um, a little bit of restfulness. And it's not something, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's it doesn't ever, I think, start to happen really automatically. There's always that place where we have to have some intention to it and it takes some skill to actually stop somebody from the sunka some years ago a person who has a family and busy life like most of us and decided that what they were going to do was when they came home from work every day they were going to take i think it was like 10 minutes it wasn't very long and do nothing <laughs> And so this person would come home and sit down, I guess, and try to do nothing. <laughs> it was very interesting to see how hard it was to do. She wasn't even going to meditate. So just nothing. You could play with it a little. I invite you, you know, go home and see, take a little window of time and see what happens if you do nothing. It's very, very interesting to see how quickly. Even the mind just starts, you know, figuring out how to, if, how to do doing nothing, at the very least. <laughs> uh. So, um, we do this. We, we have this strong intention, and, and it brings us back to the cushion over and over again, and we take time to rest and to heal and to be peaceful, to pay attention to our experience, to be nourished by this whole process, and hopefully um, to find some freedom, to to begin to see how it is that we create our own suffering and to begin to see where it is that when we stop and are just present with things, often there's less experience, I mean less suffering, less freedom. So all of this points toward um, learning this place of presence in our lives, the place of such total presence that we do much of our lives from a very different place and, as I said, from a place of more freedom. And all of this is supported and guided and in a very real way created by this place of intention so I was very taken on Tuesday at how much conversation there was how much the notion of intention threaded through a great deal of what our new president had to say and um and in some of the other things that were said that day. So I wanted to read to you, I actually read this on Tuesday, I had an initial transcript of the inaugural poem, Um, and I thought I would read it to you again. Now they have the real thing on the internet, in in case any of you are interested. So to just think about this from the perspective of intention, as you hear it, as you hear this description of of who we are, where we are as a culture, and what we might look toward. So this is Elizabeth Alexander, and it's called Praise Song for the Day. Each day we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise. All about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hem, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone is trying to make music somewhere with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils, begin. We encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed words to consider, reconsider. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find a place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought, brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle, Praise song for the day, Praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself. Others by first do no harm or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun. On the brink, on the brim, on the cusp, pray song for walking forward in that light. I particularly like the line, take out your pencils. (laughs) It reminds me so much of when I was in school taking tests. So, all week I've been thinking Martin Luther King Day, hearing many of those speeches again, um, hearing what Obama had to say on Tuesday, thinking about the importance of intention, thinking particularly on Tuesday about the intentions of the people who founded this country. What was it they were yearning for? What was it they were wanting what was it they were hoping for and what would it be to take that intention seriously again and and very touched particularly in the poem by the line many have died for this day really thinking about how many people have died so that we could sit here tonight having this conversation and intention is central in Buddhist thinking. That intention that keeps us coming back week after week, hour after hour, the intention that says, you know, what lies down the road? What happens if there's a safer place out there? What happens if we go just a little farther? And it's the intention that really creates karma. We talked about, did we talk about karma in here last week? I think we did. And so karma... Is really the reverberation of intentional actions. And the simple way to say it is one that we all know actions have consequences. And it's the karma which shapes our lives. It's your karma which shapes your lives. You don't have to think about many lifetimes. Some people do, but you don't. So you could just think think about what are the intentional actions in your life that brought you here tonight. And I'm not just talking like at 6.10 you looked at your watch and said, mm-hmm. okay, sitting time, time to go. I'm thinking, for example, in my own case, I'm thinking back to the little five-year-old kid in the heart of this agnostic family who said, this doesn't make sense to me, and began a process that unfolded, actually. I would love to tell this story. In raising myself Catholic secretly
1: <laughs> in the
0: bosom of this agnostic family. And that kept me on some track all those years. I'm not the only one in the room with this kind of story. Each of you have followed some kind of path, many of you, for many, many years. And to think about the karma, sometimes I'm so appreciative of that little kid, you know, and all of the things that she did to allow me to be here. And you might think about that, what you did as a child or a teenager or a college student that brought you, that reverberated in such a way throughout, through your life, so that here you are tonight. Mm -hmm. So intention is very like setting a compass direction. It's not about attachment. Often that question gets asked, you know, well, if I have an intention, aren't I, atta- aren't I attached? If you are attached, you will indeed suffer. This is really true. It doesn't matter whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, attachment is the problem. But having the direction is not the problem. So you remember that uh, my pilot friend who said, when asked about being on course, said we're never on course, we're always adjusting. And that's how it is with the compass direction. You're never on course. We're often a little bit off. Sometimes we're a lot off. And then you go, oh, gosh, I was really intending to go in this other direction. You know, Ryokan says, if you point your cart north and you intend to go south, how will you arrive? You know, you're not going to get there if you do that. So then you have to turn your cart around and go in the direction that you want to go in but in a way it's it's very forgiving it's really lovely to consider intention in this way because it isn't that you're bad or you've blown it or you know any of that it just says oh I got off course now I'm going to get back on course again and you get yourself back on course and do your best to stay there so you know on Monday and Martin Luther King Day um, I had the great my, my yoga teacher put together a mix of Martin Luther King's speeches and music and played them throughout the class. And, and for the really good speeches, he'd put us in a restorative pose and leave us there to kind of soak it in. It was a fabulous class. And just to hear those words reverberating, you know, again. And I, I actually had the great privilege of being in Washington at the march in 1963. So, you know, to hear that again and to remember that day, you know, all those buses coming from all over bringing us. I lived in New York at the time, bringing us there and and thinking about how much this week has been the reverberation of so many events of of the children who died in the church in Birmingham and the young men who were killed working for freedom in the south and the many many people who went down there and the many many people who came from there and the people like rosa parks you know just moving up on the bus and here we are today and her action that really simple action of walking from one end of the bus to the other isn't that amazing is still reverberating and still having consequences in our lives today and so to begin to see what the strength of intention is you know this very powerful really kind of instinctual probably I suppose you could quibble and say well it's not really intention and creatures like sea turtles but still there's that sense of coming back over and over again and and a much more refined kind of intention perhaps for more conscious beings and one of the wonderful things I think to consider is it's not all just personal, you know? So there's that sense of of these many, many threads of a whole movement, many movements, really, that have come together this week into this great celebration that we've had. And and if I think about Buddhist practice, think of all the people, 2,500 years worth of people who've said, oh, huh, I'm going to try to wake up. Monks, nuns, men, women of all sorts from many many countries. People in the jungle, people in the Himalayas, all you know now Westerners. So many people. So so you can you can allow yourself actually to take in that intention. You know, it's, in a way, we we get to to ride it a little and to use this vast intention of the community to support our personal path and practice. We can, if you'd like, rest in that intention, in this vast intention that is more than just ours. So we really... hmm, rest, notice this intention to live wisely and well to be awake, to be with compassion and and we begin to recognize where our refuge is and to remember remember what the Buddha said when asked, who is it that you are after he had his enlightenment experience <coughs> what is it that you are and he said, I am awake that was his Identity, that was his refuge. That is our refuge, that place of awakeness. And when you begin to understand that, then, kind of like the sea turtles, you know where to go again and again. In any moment, you know where the place of refuge is. And you can make it your personal intention, supported by the intention of our many, many ancestors. So I would invite you to reflect on your intention for practice this evening, whether the intention is kindness or compassion or freedom or all of them, and to really use it to inform and to support your practice. So I think I'll stop there and see if we have any questions or comments. Or your own bed of rejoicing for the week. I think that um, we don't usually know where we're to go because there's so many complexities that we don't we don't make long-term intentions, and when we we make plans, they're usually fantasies. But I really like the image of flying by correcting our course constantly, Mm -hmm. and it's really about making decisions every instant that are skillful, wise and skillful, and when we recognize that we've made an unskillful decision to quickly correct the course, clean it up and then we end up in good places, even though we had no idea that that's where we were going. Right. I think, I think the intention can often be, it, it is sort of broad, it's, I'm, just as I'm going to head east, you know, your intention might be, I'm going to be as awake as I can be, or as compassionate as I can be, but where that's going to take you, and exactly what decisions you're going to have to make, that only shows up in the moment. And then you keep making those decisions. Is this east or not? Is this compassion or not? And, and then sometimes you say, ah, oh, phew, I'm going to do what I want to do. And then you kind of blow it and you get off course. And then you wake up. And the great thing about intention, I think, and I see it a lot in communities like ours, and at Spirit Rock where I am a lot, is that, because people have such a strong sense of intention, that place of "oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake" seems to come a great deal more easily, mm-hmm. and that's quite wonderful. Sure. Yeah. Hi. Please. Um, can you speak a little bit more uh, to refuge, um, in particular the in the last way that you you said something about in any given moment? Mm-hmm. Is it no? I'm having. You. I'm really uncomfortable or nervous or is it like correcting course inside your your state? Is it it refuge literally like a place like this or both? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes a place of refuge is necessary. Mm -hmm. But I think my own sense is that any given moment has the potential for freedom. And it be, of being in that moment without suffering. So that's the question. If I am nervous, is there a way that I can hold this moment so I don't suffer so much? Which might be as simple as just letting yourself be nervous. You know, of course I'm nervous. It's new, it's different. And you kind of pat yourself on the back a little, and, you know. Or it may be realizing, like kind of like the example that Heidi gave of oh you know that action wasn't kind or compassionate the thing to do is to apologize it's amazing how much refuge is in something as simple as apologizing actually so you know there's there's, I think there's many many different ways we find it but I do believe it's inherently possible in every moment yeah does that help? Yeah, it helps. It's counter to like, oh, it's just, it's, uh, it's not escapism, you know. It's actually, no, it's, it's not, it's not the escapism. Opposite of yeah. it, but I feel like culturally, or um, yes. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you should be suffering. <laughs> you, know, you know, ah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the Buddha says not. He yeah. says, you know, he comes in order for all beings to be happy, and he meant it not in the sense of. sort of a shallow sense of happiness but that deep sense of contentment and ease Yeah. even when it's tough I think that um, I'm really happy that you went to talk tonight to what happened this week because it was such a magnificent happening And, and I think that one of the parts for me that was really um, that really resonated was the way that Obama kind of set this collective intention, mm. and for all of us, and we kind of all got caught in it and, and embraced in it, and to see the collective mm. in front of us mm. happening on the screen is really. Pretty amazing, Mm -hmm. yeah. Challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, This week in the Nation magazine, there was a cover... I had a picture of Obama being sworn in and Thurgood Marshall was swearing him in and then there were just all these faces surrounding yeah. him and it was, mm-hmm. every person was someone who had died in the civil rights struggle. Uh-huh. They had Stephen Biko and then they had the three little girls who had been murdered at
1: the church. Yeah. It was this ah. incredible cover.
0: Mm-hmm. And then to you go could find read about all the different <laughs> yeah. people and what mm-hmm. their contribution had been. But it, was, it really was this very graphic representation mm-hmm. of what made it possible. It was powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John. Ah, John. No, it's just interesting that never in my lifetime has anyone become president that has brought out this much of a thing. Uh, this much, whole, much everything—it's never been all that big mm-hmm. of an event. You know, they've been new president there, or so this is the first time it's mm-hmm. become an absolute national event, mm-hmm. totally of everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't ever hurt to have had the previous eight years. We know bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty amazing thing. Just a comment. I'm so happy you read the poem again. Mm-hmm. I was so taken <coughs> with it the first time, and I think I heard
1: from some other people oh, it wasn't very well received, and I thought.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. yes. I just thought it was so amazing. Mm-hmm. And I've, every time I've heard it since it feels more Well it can be found easily on the internet. <laughs> if you just Google Elizabeth Alexander inaugural poem, it comes right up. Mm-hmm. And my I, I just to respond to that somebody else said that to me today she said oh so many people got up and left and I said it wouldn't matter who the poet was it would, even if it were Shakespeare you know it's poetry and people hear the word poetry and they're out the door so unless they sit with me and then they've gotten used to it okay how about some announcements here and then um, were we going to announce about facilities manager here am I supposed to ask I it's think so. a good idea. Okay. But I'm prepared at all. Okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> right. All right. So we are losing our wonderful facilities managers, and Russell and Carl Vandenbos. They've decided that they've done it for a couple of years, and they're going to stop. So if anyone in this room has talents, interest, what it sort of means is... Um, keeping an eye on the place, sort of, you know, if the towels run out, you're the person who goes and gets the towels. And we're l- actually looking for a team of people, preferably two, maybe three. So, if being the facilities manager is of interest, I don't, know I don't, I didn't think to bring the job description with me. I was supposed to do no, that. If someone wants to email me, I, I can certainly okay. find So, if you have person. any curiosity about the facilities manager's job, mm-hmm. He's the person to see, or you can talk to me. But we would really, really love to hear from you because we've got to have it, and um, we've only got two months. We have a drop dead date on the thirty first of March, so. That's the way uh, it works. What? That's the only way it works. Right. <laughs> right. So other things coming up um, fairly quickly, um, in the so the very popular back to Buddhist basics or back to basics of Buddhism or whatever, our beginners evening on Wednesday is going to become a permanent Wednesday evening sit by popular acclaim so uh, we're just calling it meditation for beginners it will be Wednesdays at 6:30 not at seven going from 6:30 until 8 that means you've still got time to catch a movie if you want or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that we do those things on weeknights and um, the meditations will be short and guided so it's not going to be a 45minute sit they'll probably be I don't know, you've been doing a couple 10 15 20 minute sits is that right and mm-hmm. um, with some very basic teachings so it will be sort of anybody could come at any point Um, in February we're going to be doing um, kind of basic Vipassana teachings and basic Buddhist teachings Jill's going to do a couple of weeks of metta later on in March and and so we'll cover kind of the territory but there's no particular place to come in or particular place to exit and as time goes on, we may have other beginner's classes at other times to accommodate people who want you know, a chunk. But this is for people who really feel more comfortable with some guidance or some basic teachings. You're, and if you just want to come and sit, if you really love to sit and want to sit on... Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, you can now do that here at Vipassana Santa Cruz if you pick your time right. So there are some new and beautiful flyers, thanks to Julia, over on the table, says Meditation for Beginners. Um, What we don't have flyers for, um, so that's beginning, we're going to miss one week. So next Wednesday it will not happen, and February 4th it will begin. Um, On February 7th, Two of the nuns from Amrabati who are coming to California to help start a nuns community here in California, Sister Ananda Bodhi and Sister Santa Chita, will be here to offer a day long. Um, We don't yet have a flyer, but it will be from 9.30 until 5 here at the center, sitting, walking, Dharma talks. Um, We'll probably be inviting people to bring some food to share with the nuns because their food has to be offered to them. Um, And so um, watch for the flyer, but if you'd like to hold the day, that's Saturday, February 7th. And then there's now a flyer for our next two in our Buddhist Teachers of Santa Cruz series. Um, Friday, February 13th, Carolyn Atkinson will be here. And Friday, March 6th, John Landau from the Tibetan world. So that flyer is also out. It's been a great series. It's been really interesting. hear people talk about their own practice I've been at them to kind of help field questions about how is it the same, how is it different and then also in February um, Carla will be back from her travels in Asia and she's offering a class on embodying your realization on Fridays beginning February 13th so that flyer which looks like this is also over there on the table so lots going on is doing a day long at the end of this month? No, it's the end of March. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I believe, yeah. So, um, I think that's all. Um, I was invited to remind you again about the Donna. And someone said, well, people don't really know what the Donna, it's easy to know what the Donna for the teachers does, it supports the teachers, but for the Sangha, um, it's quite possible that some of you don't know that we have a, about, it takes about $3,000 a month to support us here. We have a lot of rent and then, you know, expenses. So it really helps when people make an offering either on a monthly basis, um, and you can do it online if you'd like to do that, um, or you can do it once a month here or on a weekly basis. And, you know, if everybody kicks in a bit, then we get our money. So we're all feeling a little anxious as the whole economic thing is tightening up a bit and we'd sure like to keep the center afloat so that we can help people when it's a time of suffering. So just know that that's true. Anything else? Okay, let's end with some intention of loving kindness. Elizabeth Alexander says so well at the end of that poem, what if the mightiest word is love, love beyond marital, filial, national, love that casts a widening pool of light, love with no need to preempt grievance. So this is an excellent description of metta. So what if that were the mightiest word? So sit and in some simple way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.